If you would, go ahead and grab your scriptures and turn to uh, Psalm chapter 15. Psalm 15 is what we're going to look at this morning. Either there's a pew Bible or maybe the scriptures you brought with you here this morning. Just as a frame of reference, uh, we've been looking at the Psalms over the summer here. I think this is the ninth Psalm maybe we've looked at. Maybe it feels like the hundredth Psalm. I hope not. But it's only the ninth one. And uh, we've been looking at it, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, as in essence, as the prayer book of the people of God, meaning there are a variety, a mixture of prayers in here for us to, to grab and to use when we need to confess or we need, when we need to praise or when we need to uh, ask for wisdom or we're struggling with our circumstances, uh, there is a psalm or a prayer for you. And the powerful thing about the psalms and really for God's word is that it's, it's, it can be formative in our lives. Uh, if we approach the scriptures with a sense of honesty and integrity, then we're going to see the scriptures change us. We're going to see the Psalms change us because they're going to bring about in us certain responses. For example, sometimes we'll read the scriptures and there'll be a response of repentance. We'll be reading along and saying, oh, I'm doing this. this is, I don't need to be doing this anymore. I need, I need to change this. Or there'll be a response of joy. Just that your eyes are opened up to this is who God is and, and what he's done. And there's a sense of praise and a joy, gladness that's there. Sometimes there's a response of confession. I, I, it's similar to repentance, but you see it's like, ooh, I lied to that person. And I need to confess it uh, now. Sometimes that there, we're marked with assurance that we're struggling. Circumstances are hard or, or really sad in our lives. And we just need scripture's promises to speak to us. And sometimes our response is we're just assured, we're comforted. We have a greater sense of confidence that he's there and that he's got this and he's going to help me. Scriptures should be driving us to different responses as we read with a sense of integrity and honesty in our hearts. And Psalm 15 is certainly one of those psalms that beg for our response, for our own evaluation. As we get to the end, you'll see what kind of response is right to this. Psalm 15 is our passage this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's word as you're able. And we'll hear, these, uh, hear this prayer to us this morning. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Verse 1, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one, who walk, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks truth in their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change his mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father God, would you use these words, would you use the the words of of David here, this psalm, to form our hearts in our minds and our lives? Would you give us a sense of honesty as we hear these words? We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Whenever you're uh, entering into something new or contemplating doing something new, you want to know what the expectations are. 
you want to, a sense in which you want to make sure that you can do this, that this is realistic, whether it's a, a move or a new job position or uh, a marriage or something, you or being a, a parent maybe for the first time, you want a, a sense of which, can I do this? Uh, what's expected of me? What, what kind of path do I need to go down for this? When my wife and I were married, three or four months into being married, I suggested to her, it's like, well, what do you think about going to seminary? You know, we've had a little change already. Let's just really go for it and really have a lot more change. Let's, let's leave our jobs and our, the financial security that we have, and let's go move somewhere different that we've never lived before and start this different life. Let's move out of maybe we were doing college ministry at the time. Let's move towards maybe thinking about doing ministry in the church. And she freaked out for a little bit, but we kept talking about it, understandably so. And uh, I took some extension classes. We were living in Middle Tennessee, and there were some classes offered in Nashville. So I took some of those seminary classes, just just like, well, okay, I still know how to spell a little bit, and I can read uh, maybe at least one book. And so maybe let's keep going a little bit. So we took a campus visit, St. Louis, the seminary that we were thinking about going to. We go there, and we show up, and we visit the campus and talk to the administration sit in on a class it's, you know, where they're lecturing about something and meet some of the students. And I remember sitting or standing in a, kind of a, a group with some other guys that were kind of helping us answer our questions and sharing about their experience and how they transitioned to going into seminary here. And I just remember walking away from that thinking, okay, I think we can do this. I, I think I, I can see how it could work. Uh, I think it's reasonable to think that, you, you know, job-wise we can do this and some other uh, financial things that we can put together to, to make this happen. And what I saw in that moment was a path, a sense of which I saw a path forward. This is what it could look like, and this is realistic for us. I saw the expectations that were there. In a sense, Psalm 15 is, is laying down for us a path, if you will, an avenue, if you will. This is what it looks like to belong to God. This is what it looks like to be identified with him, to follow him, to trust him, to live for him. And this morning, I simply want to unpack what that is a little bit with a little bit more color and a little bit more um, specifics of what it means for us. And the outline is simple. The, the way the psalm is, is laid out for us, in essence, is the outline. The question that he asks in verse 1, and then there's the answer, verses 2 through 5 there going through that, and then finally I want to think about the response. What kind of response, or what should we do with this kind of psalm, this kind of prayer? So first, let's think about uh, the question. This is not so much true of us now, but it's still kind of there. When our kids were younger, we got a lot of questions. You know, why is the sky blue? Why are you stopping? Why is that yellow light mean? All kinds of questions. Why, 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 why? And after a while, it just became kind of white noise, and we would just, you know, because I said so, that's why, okay? And we just kind of leave it at that. We don't get a lot of questions anymore. We still get some from one who will be named nameless. But the psalmist starts with a question. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? If you're here with us last week, we looked at Psalm 14, and that psalmist starts with a question as well. Why is the fool saying in his heart there is no God. And, and the, the feel of that psalm was, it was this desire to dismiss God, 
to put him on the margins and not have him in the center and, and to reduce his authority in one's life. You get to Psalm 15, and it's the opposite, isn't it? He doesn't want to dismiss God, but he's, his, his thinking is, I desire him. I want more of him. What does it look like for me to know the presence of God in my life? What does it look like for me to go after him? Imagine this situation. You're on vacation, and you're with your family at the beach, and uh, Sunday comes, and you're like, we need to go to church. I want to go to church. Where do we go to church? You look on your phone, or you look online somehow. You find the church. You find the address. You get the directions, the time, and you go. Uh, Somehow you get the family in the car, and they look decent enough, church-worthy enough to be there, and you pull in maybe a little bit later than you want, park the car, and you get your kids out, and it looks like that's the entrance, so you head that way. And as you get closer, you see this crowd of people gathered around. And you hear this pastor, one of the pastors, saying, this is what it looks like to be in this church. This is what's expected of you. If you want to know God, if you want to walk with him and be identified with him, this is what it looks like. And I bring that picture up because, in a sense, that's how this psalm was originally used. It was used in a worship situation, responsively. The priest would stand up and say, you know, this is who wants to be in the presence of the Lord, basically, verse 1. And then you would have the congregation giving the answer in verses 2 through 5. But before we go any further, let's clarify this for a minute. That this question and answer that we see in this, it's not about regarding how does one get saved? Or how does one become a Christian? Or how does one uh, know that all their sins are forgiven? It's not, he's not asking that. He's not asking about your justification, but he's asking about your sanctification. This is what it looks like to walk with the Lord. This is what it looks like to be identified with him, to be in the church, uh, or be in the presence of God. It's, it's this kind of picture, uh, being a Christian, so to speak. It's not asking you, this is what's required to, to be a Christian, to get saved, so to speak, because we know the answer to that. We don't have to do anything. All we do to God is we bring our brokenness, our sin and our shame and our guilt. We bring it before him, confessing it, and he gives us Christ. He gives us a life that was lived in our place, doing and obeying in a way that we could never do. And he gives us his righteousness or his rightness. And so we're saved because of the work of Christ, but we live in the presence of him also by the work of Christ. And we'll move through that a little bit more detail. But notice what is not here. There's no listing, particularly this is the Old Testament. There's no, the priest is not getting up and David's not saying to us, if you want to be in the presence of the Lord, you've got to do this, this, and this. You've got to make this sacrifice. You've got to say these words. You've got to do this. There's no ritual there, so to speak. There's, there's none of those kind of requirements. The psalmist doesn't mention faith. He doesn't about having faith to be in the presence of the Lord. That's not mentioned. There's no talk about the Holy Spirit here. But what the psalmist is describing is behavior, ethics, your life. If you want to to, to walk with and know the deep uh, richness of belonging to God, then a life, your life needs to look like these things. You need to be moving in this direction. I've heard it explained like this, and maybe it will help. Imagine you sign up your heart up on cash, and you you are desperate. You really need some, some pocket change, so you sign up for this sociology experiment and these people come to you and they say you know what here's what we want you to do for three days we are going to videotape and record everything about your life nothing will go unnoticed 
what you're wearing, what you're saying, who you're talking to, all those things are going to be recorded. Now, if I was to, if you were to think about that, do you think that your life would be a little bit different? Would you respond differently to things? Of course you would. You would be very careful. I don't want to do anything scandalous. I don't want to do anything that brings shame on me or my family. I don't want to do any of that. And so you're going to be very cautious and very careful of what you say and who you say it to and how you're acting and behaving. Well, in a sense, that's what this psalm is about. It's supposed to, to, to remind us that nothing escapes God's attention. God sees everything about you, what you're seeing, what you're thinking, what you're experiencing. He knows it all. He knows all of our good and all of our bad. And that's the, the, the power of this psalm is meant to, to jar you and to remind you this is what's important. This is what should be a priority in your life. This past week I was reading about this author and he was talking about a news article that he had read. And it involved a doctor who got kicked out of uh, his practice basically. He was doing uh, part of a, a team doing a back surgery. And it's, you know, you've seen these things or heard about it. It takes hours to do these back surgeries. It's very specific and it's very intensive. Well, in the middle of that surgery, he says, hold on a minute. I've got to go and do something, and I'll be back here in a little bit. Leaves the operating room. And those that are his comrades working with him are thinking, man, it must be, must be pretty important. He's cutting out. I mean, this is pretty a big deal. Doing, we've got somebody, we're doing surgery here. Come to find out that what he had to do is he had to go deposit his paycheck in the bank. And for some weird reason, uh, the medical board thought that was uncalled for and not necessary, and they suspended his license. But you think about it, we do these things kind of all the time. There's, there's things in our life that, that are not top priority, but we treat it as top priority. We get bent out of shape and emotional and excited about things that are needful, things that we need to have a, put attention into, but not the most important thing. And the psalmist with his question here at the beginning is, who can be in the presence of the Lord? He's saying this is what's important. This is the priority it's, it's meant to jar us. It's meant to, to remind us this is what is most important in my life. So having said that, let's look at the answer. How does the psalmist respond to this question that's laid out before him? The truth of the matter is, or the shorter answer is, who can be in the presence of the Lord is the person with integrity. Integrity of heart and mind. That's the short answer In these verses, we'll see a longer answer. I'm not going to walk through each and every one of them, but I do want to look at at least five of these things that the psalmist talks about. For example, in verse 2, David describes this. He says, the one whose walk is blameless. That's who can be in the presence of the Lord. And when you hear blameless, don't think of sinless or the one who has no flaws in them at all, but think about it like this. The root of that word is whole or complete And so think about it as wholeheartedly, the one who is wholeheartedly after God. That's who can be in God's presence. You remember uh, David, excuse me, uh, God talks to Abraham a number of times in in his life. And there's one place in Genesis 17 where God says this to him. He says to Abraham, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and wholeheartedly. 
is the gist of what that is saying. Walk before me with a sense of loyalty, completeness, that your desires, your priorities are not divided, but I have your wholehearted attention and commitment, which is why he says what he says in verse 2. He says he speaks the truth from his heart. He speaks the truth from his heart. Again, what a, what a contrast to Psalm chapter 14, where the fool was saying there is no God, trying to, to marginalize him, God, in his life, and filling his heart, in essence, with false teaching and false assumptions, with false truth, so to speak. But the psalmist here, in Psalm 15, he's speaking truth in his heart. Truth resides in his heart. Paul Tripp, uh, author, talks about it like this. He says, if you think about your heart, there's always content going on. You're always having conversation with yourself. You're always saying things. There's always viewpoints. There's always opinions. There's always content, in a sense, there. And David is saying in this psalm that the content of the, of the righteous person is, is what? Is truth. That his heart is dyed in truth, soaked in that truth. That's, that's who he is, and it overflows in, in his life, and how he lives, and how he responds to other people. And the reason this is important is because of your heart. Your heart is what drives all that you are. Your heart is your will, your mind, emotions, everything about you. It's your heart. And what you're believing in your heart drives your actions. It drives who you are. It is who you are. Maybe think about it like this. Let's say that you are are frustrated. You've done something wrong. And you look around and you say, I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for my spouse. Or if it wasn't for my job made me do this. Or my child. Or this or that situation. Or because we didn't have a lot of money. That's why I did this. David, is, in essence, is saying in the Psalms, like, no, that's not the reason you did it. You did it because of your heart. Because that's who you really are. It's not their fault. It's not your circumstances' fault. It's your fault. You're the one that is driving us. It's about your heart. And I say this, you should take this and, and know that there's a war going in your life. There's a battle. Because it's, you know, we, there's a battle there because we think my way of doing things is better than God's. We think that we know better timing. We know better situation. We know better than him. And we're not willing to let him lead. We're not willing to trust him. We're not really ready to believe him. Number three, the worshiper in God's presence is careful with his speech. Look at verse three, careful with his speech. Whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others. That last phrase there, cast no slur on others, meaning you're not ridiculing, you're not mocking. Think about uh, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Remember the, the giant Philistine that opposed uh, the people of Israel? The giant coming out and he's mocking, he's ridiculing, he's throwing out all this slander, so to speak, upon them, trying to draw them out into battle. The righteous person does not do that. He does not practice those things. He's careful with his speech. He's careful with his tongue. He's careful in what he says he's careful not to speak ill of others think about it like this as you're kind of examining your heart how do you deal with those who are of lesser importance how do you view them who are lower down on the 
economic chain of things, lower down in status because of their background and experience, how do you view them? I had a seminary professor say to us, say to the class, he says, you know what, if I want to get to know how you and how your church is doing and how your leadership is doing, there's one thing I would do. If I visited your church, I would find the custodian or the janitor, and I would go and talk to him and ask him questions. How does the church treat you? How does the pastor treat you? What does that look like? Often how we treat others that are maybe not as the same status or not our peers is an indicator of who we are and what we are about. Number four, there's a clear allegiance or loyalty in whose eyes a vile person is despised, meaning he hates sin because God hates sin. He hates the same things that God hates and despises. Those things are not attractive to him. He doesn't give them space in their heart and in his mind and in his life. As you evaluate your life, you th- evaluate your mind and your attitude and how you uh, think about this, think about it like this. What did you feed yourself on this week? Not food, but what did you feed yourself on? What websites did you go to? What books did you read? What TV shows did you watch? What blog posts did you read? Uh, what followers on Facebook fed you this week? What's the content that's coming into your life? Are you valuing the same things that God does, or are you valuing something different? Verse 4, the last one that I want to look at, it says he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Another translation may be, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Keeps his oath even when it hurts. It's easy to live up to your word and let your yes be yes and your no be no when it's to your advantage and when it helps you out and it's a real benefit to you. But what about when it's not? What about when things change and you've made a commitment? Are you still able to follow through on that even when it hurts, even when it's a sacrifice for you, even when it's a a deficit of somehow in your life? That's the answer in a nutshell. Again, we didn't look at each one of them. We looked at the majority of them. And as you hear that and as you think about your own life and your heart and how you do or don't do in this, these categories, there's two responses you can have, two responses you can have to these things. One is you can simply confess and say, you know what, you're right. <laughs> Psalm 15, you are right. I don't do this or that, and I see This has been a blind spot I didn't know was there, and I confess that. I I agree with it. I know it's, it's true. If you're feeling uncomfortable, for example, the Bible calls that conviction because it's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this needs to be attended to. This needs to be thought about. You need to put some time in here and and work on this, so to speak. If you're feeling crushed by this psalm, it means that it's doing its work. It's meant to crush you. It's meant to say, I can never go into the presence of God. I can never, because I can never live up to these expectations. It's, it's meant to do that. The other response you could have is just to simply give up. is to say, you know what, maybe not verbally to uh, those around you, but just to be thinking in your heart, you know what, I like going to church, and uh, I like the Bible, and I'm pro-Christian and things like that. I don't think I want to be a Christian like this. I don't want to be this fanatical. I don't want to be this intense about it. 
I enjoy the music and, and the people and things like that, but I just don't know if I want to do this and go this far. But here's the thing with those two different responses there. There's a danger with each one of them. If you fail to embrace something, if you fail to embrace two aspects of the gospel, so to speak, the first thing that we need to embrace after reading particularly a psalm like this can be so cutting and so convicting is we, got, we have to embrace, embrace the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of the gospel. And this is what I mean by that. You read a psalm like this, and, and, and part of its intention is really it, it is to drive into your heart and let you evaluate there. But it's also meant to say, hey, there's somebody who does fulfill all these things. There's somebody who has achieved all these things, and that person is Christ. It's meant to point you towards him. This is what he has done. For example, it talks about keeping a promise even when it would cause him hurt or even when it's not to his advantage. You remember Jesus in the garden? He's praying to the Father, and he's contemplating taking this cup of wrath and going to the cross and doing that. He says, God, I, I don't want to do this, but nevertheless, not my will be done. Let your will be done. He's willing to, to keep his promise even when it's at a disadvantage to him. It talked too briefly about the, the righteous person doesn't take a bribe. You remember Christ in the beginning of the Gospels? He's up on this mount with Satan, and Satan proposes to him. He says, if you bend the knee, then you can have all this stuff. If you take this bribe, so to speak, you can have all of this. And Christ says, no, he doesn't do it. Christ is the, the, the embodiment of Psalm 15. He does all these things for us in our place. It's why it's meant to drive us to Christ. In First Corinthians, excuse me, in Second Corinthians 5, it says this of Christ. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Psalm 15 is saying, This is the righteousness of Christ. And he did it all in your place for you. It's the comfort of the gospel that we take on his righteousness, that we know that he did these things for me. He followed the law in a way that I couldn't and haven't and never will be. And he took the punishment that the law dictates in my place when he died on the cross. It's the comfort of the gospel there for us. But there's a second thing about the gospel. We have to hear the call of the gospel at the same time. There's one thing to know the comfort of the gospel. That there's another thing to know the call of the gospel. And you think, well, I'm already a Christian. I mean, why do I need more of the gospel? Why do I need the call of the gospel in my life? Titus chapter 2 says this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, i.e. the gospel has appeared to everybody, training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Titus is saying to us, grace has come into your life or the gospel has come into your life. And yes, there's a lot of comfort there, but it's also doing something else. It should be saying to you, no. No, I'm not living like this anymore. No, I'm not practicing these things anymore. This is my priority. This is what's important to me. This is what I'm striving after now. In First Peter, it says, you shall be holy as I am holy. That's what God would have for us, that we pursue holiness. We pursue being set apart for him. Can you do that on your own? Of course you can't. 
God knows you can't. That's why he's given you Christ in your place. The work of the cross, the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit in you, moving you in this direction. Are you hearing the call of the gospel? In the sense that there's a call there, a lifestyle change, a priority change, a change in our relationships and how we love people and forgive people. Let me close with this. Two questions. Are you living your life in the comfort of the gospel? Are you living your life in the comfort of the gospel and living your life for yourself? Or this, are you feeling defeated in your life? Meaning all that you hear is you hear the call of the gospel. I've got to be holy. I've got to be perfect. I've got to do all the right things. But you're walking around defeated and full of self-pity and shame and maybe even anger. The call of the gospel is certainly live for God, know him, pursue him. There should be change in faith and repentance in our life. But at the same time, the comfort of the gospel says you're forgiven. You're loved. There's no reason for you to feel shame and guilt. There's no reason for you to feel marginalized and second class because I gave you my son. I give you everything that I love and value for you so that you could be mine and belong to me. What's the promise at the end of Psalm chapter 15? He who does these things shall never be moved. If you understand the call and the comfort of the gospel, you understand everything that God has done for you, you'll never be moved. God's presence will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never give up on you. You are bound to him in steadfast covenant love because of Christ and what he's done for us. Let's pray and ask him to work. Father God, we come to you. We know we don't measure up to Psalm 15. We know we fall short. If we read this with honesty and integrity, thoughtfulness, uh, we know that we've crossed all kinds of lines. But in the midst of that, we desire to be your people. We desire to worship you. We desire to be in your presence, to walk with you and to know you. We desire to pray to you bringing you our our wants and our needs, bringing to you the things we're excited about and bringing you to things that we're concerned about. We want to be your people. So would you show us more clearly what it means to embrace the comfort and the call of your gospel. We ask all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.